Welcome to the 41st episode of The Cycle 365, recorded on July 13th, 2020. I am Cody Stoffer. I am Simon Villanos. Hey, and I'm Liam Hughes. And we got a pretty diverse palette for you guys today. We'll be talking UFC, the conferences opting out of fall sports at the collegiate level, top five offensive linemen of all time, and another edition of Good Take, Bad Take. But as I said, we're going to start off with UFC and we're going to be talking the main card fights today. Now, I'm pretty sure all of us caught recaps. Liam and I actually got to watch a full fight for sure. Thank you to like the UFC posting a free fight from this Saturday. But we're going to talk about them in the order that they were presented. So up first, we got, I think it's Rebus versus Van Zant. Van Zant. Van Zant. So this was the strawweight fight, right, fellas? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that there is a belt on the line, but it didn't really matter because the fight was over in like 30 seconds. Yeah, so that uh Paige Van Zant versus Amanda Rivas fight, I- I'm pretty sure everyone, everyone who follows like UFC and whatnot and knows about um was about Paige Van Zant. I would say like this. This is gonna suck to hear, but this is just reality. Like Dana White pretty much pushes Paige Van Zant to like not the top card fights or like the super important fights, but he definitely like you know kind of like puts her in positions against fighters that are way better. Just because if I'm being honest, she's a pretty face, and a lot of people like know her for that. I would say um, um, more people outside of UFC fans will know her for that. In general and so this wasn't a fair fight at all like nobody really expected Paige Van Zant to do much she was like a huge underdog and but she had a plan to prevent uh, <clears throat> her from taking her to the ground but honestly she's just a uh, rebus I mean she's just a better fighter you know all around and whatnot and you know Van Zant hasn't really had best couple outings the last couple times and she doesn't really fight that often she fights maybe once a year that might be stretching it a little bit you know and so it was there were really no surprises that you know she got submitted in the first round by armbar um yeah and you know this was the last one of her ufc contract and based on what dana white said basically saying that he hopes she enjoys free agency uh i think this might be the last we see of Paige van zant in the ufc for now Liam, what did you have to say about the fight? Uh, I would say that she definitely looked way out of her depth. Um, I don't want to, you know, insult her or any fans or anything, but she, it just looked like she was not ready, essentially, for that level of competition. Um, and it, it was proven. I mean, just just looking at the records here, you know, of Rebus being... 10 and 1 now, so probably 9 and 1 before the fight, and Paige being 8 and 5 now, so 8 and 4. Like, I feel like that's a pretty big discrepancy. I mean, maybe the fact that it looks like 8 and 5 to 10 and 1, but like, I don't know. That's just like a lot of losses. Like, it's almost 500, you know, which you don't see a lot at the UFC level. But to comment on Simon's point, there are some rumors that Van Zant is going to sign to the same contract that vanderford fights for really yeah 
I mean, that's I'm mean, all the best to her, you know. Like I've I've been I want to say I've been like a huge fan. I've known of her for a really long time since she started out. You know, and she was always a solid enough fighter, but never like you know, like super awesome or anything or like great. Like she was always known for like being just a good person in general and just someone that a lot of people liked. And she kind of just had that charisma, you know, that kind of drew fans, even though she wasn't the best fighter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Best of luck to her. Yeah, hopefully she finds more success in uh, wherever she goes next and uh, finds more more fair competition. Uh, and just overall has a better time and ho- hopefully doesn't get armbarred in 36 seconds or something. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll definitely see more of Rebus, though. Oh, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. So, is that all that we have for that first fight? Yeah, pretty Bye. much. I mean, there wasn't really. I feel like this one went as expected, and there wasn't much to it. All right. So up next we have Andraj. I believe it's pronounced yeah I, I try and repeat what the announcers say first is a uh, namahunas is that or namahunas what do you say namahunas yeah okay namahunas which i thought was it was probably my favorite fight to watch if i'm being completely honest and this was a rematch for those who don't know where andraj took the first one back in brazil so she had a little bit of like I mean, it's not the same to call it like home field advantage, but there's definitely something to be said of that, you know, fan presence and stuff like that. So Andrade took the first one when they first matched up. And I thought that this rematch was the most entertaining fight of the night. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think it was most definitely up to, you know, it it was really fun to watch. I think both fighters are, I don't want to say super different, but they're different enough it's entertaining to the degree that they just like kind of complement each other you know what i mean like rose nama eunice she is very i would say the first two rounds at least she came off as very you know polished off so she was obviously i, I don't want to say way taller but she was definitely taller than um than jessica andrage and she used that height beautifully, you know. She had great footwork. It was extremely smooth. She kept her distance. She didn't let Andrade get her hands on her, which, by the way, in the third round when that happened, it kind of really started going downhill really fast. <laughs> it wasn't the greatest look. But, yeah, no, I thought this was an excellent fight. What do y'all think about this fight, though? Because I know some people felt like Andrade might have, you know, edged her out at the end there, but I, I don't agree with that. Cody, I, go ahead. I think that Namajunas won this fight. Um, I think yeah. that I think it was close. Like I don't want to. I don't want to say that people who think Adraj won this fight are wrong. Like flat out wrong. You know. I mean, we we saw how uh, Namajunas looked at the end of the fight. You know, like she, she got like her face split open. You know. Like yeah. it was a good fight. There are a lot of connections, and that's why that's part of the reason why it was one of my favorite fights is because it was so close and because there was so much contact. Because you know there wasn't, it didn't really feel like a dull moment. You know, like a lot of the other 
fights, like there's seriously 10 to 15 seconds where nothing happens, you know, but I don't feel like that happened in this fight. So I don't want to flat out say that, you know, like Andraj lost this fight a hundred percent, you know, like it was close. So I don't want to discount what other people thought of potentially Andraj winning, but I still think that she lost. So, yeah, I would say that uh, Andraj lost. I'm not. Uh, um, it was. I mean, it was. Super, it was definitely close. It was super close. Um, I wouldn't say it was close enough to to contest by any means, but um, it was a good victory for Namajitas and good little revenge story. Always nice to see those in uh, UFC. They're pretty common, actually, and I that's one of my favorite parts of UFC. I was going to say, I would not mind a third match between the two of them, but yeah. I think that'd be awesome if, you know, somehow th there were, uh, like, I don't know, like really, really, really high stakes. You know what I'm saying? So it's like like a end of a book kind of thing. Right, a little best of three action. Whoever loses just retires. <laughs> I, mean, I mean basically you know. <laughs> yeah uh i mean honestly this fight was really entertaining and i agree that nam Yunus definitely won um but that third round was definitely telling i would say because andraj really like he turned it up a lot and she was already trying pretty hard throughout the first two rounds i would say but you know nam Yunus just did a really good job staying disciplined keeping her distance tagging her and moving and whatnot but Andraj definitely caught Nama Yunus, I want to say, with either an over or a straight. And she kind of, it looked like she slept Nama Yunus for a, for a quick second, but she didn't. And she eventually turned that into a pretty aggressive takedown, which Nama Yunus just, in my opinion, just barely escaped in the third round. And she kind of made up for that with a little takedown in, uh, on her own in the, like, the last 40 seconds or so of that third round. But it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't super impressive. It was just like for the cards, you know. And if I'm being honest, if there was a third fight. I think Andraj would probably take it because I did kind of believe in Nama Yunus, you know, most of the fight. But they're, oh my gosh, the undisciplined near the end there was a little scary. She definitely almost got slept. And I feel like something people should keep an eye on. No, for yeah. sure. That, uh, that last bit that last fight where or part of the fight where they, they were just on the ground just wrestling the whole time it, it looked like it could have been anybody's match and it looked like it could have been anybody's disqualification or uh knockout you know what i mean yeah i go ahead i was gonna say in a in a three-round fight you know it's really hard to at least for me it's really hard to give someone the entire fight if if they just win one round right because we all agree here that namajunas won the first two rounds of this fight like like convincingly you know and the fact that andraj's barrage in the third round was enough to even you know consider that she would win you know is a testament to it but i think that you know like if, if you lose the majority of rounds it, especially if you're or if you're doing like a title bout that's five rounds you know and like if you lose the first four rounds, you have to knock out the other person to win the fight. In my in my opinion, that's what yeah. it should be. Which almost happened, but not quite. 
but I think that that's a good summary of this fight and this rematch is almost but not quite for Andrade and Namajunas got to keep her guard up in the third round if they fight again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Because uh, she, I think after she got knocked, okay, sorry, not knocked down. She got taken down. There's a difference there. After she got taken down, she definitely, you could tell she was trying to make up those points for some reason, even though she definitely had the two rounds and that kind of just led her to not being as clean footwork wise, to getting way too close and like just not like, know being as good of a defensive fighter as she could have been and you know that's just something she could work on you know that's a thing that a lot of fighters have to go through knowing when to relax and when to you know not push the tempo if you don't need to and yeah because honestly that does take some you know it takes a little bit away from uh, their health long-term wise and then short-term wise as well so it, you know that's just a little learning thing if i had to critique uh, nam Yunus at all but altogether i did feel like she had a very clean and sound um technically sound fight for her yeah i i definitely agree and i th i like i said i would really want a trilogy for 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 these two i think that like you said simon they're complementary in a way in the contrast that they bring to the table so you get to see a little bit of everything when these two fight i mean i mean the first fight ended on just a complete head slam you know so like i mean yeah. that's that's quality entertainment so maybe that should be the uh title of this episode give us a trilogy for andrage and namajunas we i'd like to see it honestly i would um that, you know hats off to namajunas because that first fight was pretty devastating for her that's a tough that's a pretty bad way to lose Especially yeah. in Brazil, so this was a pretty big confidence booster for her. Definitely. I don't have anything else on this fight. Do either of you? Nope. All right. Give us a trilogy. But on to the first title bout. The Oh, by the way, correction to the Rebus fight. That was women's flyweight, and the Andrade Namajunas one was strawweight. Anyways... For the bantamweight fight between Yan or Yan and Aldo, um, this one we talked about this a little bit before the show was not close. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. <laughs> I mean, um, Aldo did his best. He is the veteran, you know. We'll give I'll give him that credit. He is the veteran, and Peter Yan is more of an up and comer. Which, by the way, I'm a little bit of a fan now. I was pretty impressed, but anyways. Um, Otto definitely, you know, he, he didn't lie down either, though. He he still has he still has it with those kicks. Like, some of those kicks were so devastating. Like, ah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. There are a couple kicks in, I'm going to say, either the second or third round where I was like, all right, well, Peter Jan isn't defending and protecting himself as well as he could have, you know. Um, but, you know, he eventually fixed that in the later rounds. It was still a pretty, you know... I, entertaining fight to a degree though i i don't know it just i just don't think it was as close as the other ones that we're going to talk about oh well yeah no compared to them definitely not <laughs> so and even compared to like i think as far as like splitting up this ufc 251 into like competitive and non-competitive uh aldo and yan fall on the side of rebus and van zandt so if you were to draw a line in the sand of competitive versus the ones that weren't super close. 
I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Uh, but at the same time, auto depth, in my opinion, after rewatching the rounds and looking at some other analysis of it, I think auto most definitely got at least one or two rounds, though. I felt like he, like, you know, he definitely took those rounds and Jan didn't do, uh, Peter Jan didn't do enough to, to win the round. Honestly, and those are more of the middle rounds. The fourth and fifth rounds was where he most definitely put it away. Uh, arguably, you know, sooner than the refs ruled, but you know. So, I, I I saw some reactions on Twitter, and we talked about it a, a little bit about you guys think that the fight should have been ended sooner than it was. But what is your guys's um, thoughts behind it, Simon or Liam? Go ahead, Liam. I think it was pretty obvious by the end of the fight, by the, like the last two, three minutes that um, Aldo was gone. Aldo was not fighting anymore. Yes, he was still protecting himself, but he was not defending himself in the same sense as like he was not fighting back. He was not competing. He was just turtled up. He was in a shell. He was just trying to protect his life at that point and his body and his ego as well i'd assume uh by not tapping out yep um, so. i mean yeah well, absolutely i agree i mean honestly we could even go as far back as the first round where yon had had auto on the what is it on the floor and what well, he almost won it in that first round because in those waning seconds he was pretty much in the same position as he would be in the end you know grounding and pounding and it was you know, there was definitely, I mean, I wouldn't have been mad if the refs stopped the fight right there, but I get why they went on, because, and I thought that was a good call, but there was definitely, you know, a little bit of an argument for the stoppage there. And then, oh, in the the fifth round, I would say, I think that's what Liam was referring to, you know. Yeah, yeah there was most definitely, like, I, mean, I, I counted it because I wanted to be sure, because it just seemed like, as a viewer, I got pretty uncomfortable. I'm not gonna lie, and I hate uh, Jose Aldo. I just I've never liked him. I've always been a Conor McGregor fan too, though. So there's that. But that's that's why. And I've he's always been someone I didn't hate. But even that was that wasn't enough to justify what I saw for pretty much a straight four minutes of his skull getting pounded in, like hammer fist after hammer fist, and like I mean the thing about you know. UFC fighters, well, not just UFC fighters, but fighters in general, you know, that's a pretty tough way to go. Like, losing by ground and pound is like, not only is it painful, but it is most definitely one of the more humiliate, humiliating ways of going. And I, I'm i not going to lie, man, props to Aldo, because I minute two or maybe even minute one, I definitely would have given up, but he kind of just hung in there and the refs didn't stop it. And he kept like pounding on his neck and on his head. And hey, I'm just, I'm just going to say it. Like I could definitely tell that Peter Jan was like kind of holding back a little bit like between punches, just because like, if he was to continuously hit the dude as hard as he could, he would have most definitely either paralyzed him or like caused some significant damage to him. And, it was really hard to watch, but eventually they stopped it after like four minutes of straight, like, you know, um, obliteration. See, I've, and that's something that, so Liam and I watched, watched the fight together and he, he, that, that's, that's a good word to use is uncomfortable. Cause he was just like, oh my gosh, why are they still fighting? But I feel like 
you know, so in UFC, we, we've talked about it before, Simon, right? Where people think that the refs end the fight too early, right? And then you have things where the ref didn't end the fight soon enough. And I think that like where that line kind of has to come in is also like, like I think that there needs to be like almost an education for like fighters. Like they know that getting the snot kicked out of you for a living is going to be damaging to your body. But like that, I think that there has to be some sort of accountability there. Like, like Liam mentioned, you know, Aldo was defending his pride more than he was defending his body by that point in the fight, right? Like you got to know like, okay, I'm, I'm not even moving. I'm not rolling around or anything to try and even avoid this. Like you gotta, you gotta tap out. And like that, that's also a reflection of, you know, like masculinity and, and ego in our society. But, but it is a thing that needs to be addressed, I think, because, you know, like, because sometimes, you know, if a ref thinks the fight is over, like it's personal judgment for a ref, right? Like you're never going to get the same call between two refs and you can't have one ref right. work every single fight, you know, like there's just right. literally no way to find consistency with that unless you like, I don't know, maybe a tart attached like heartbeat monitors or something like there. It's not possible, you know? So yeah. I think that there has to be accountability for the fighters, you know, in the same way that okay, if I don't tap out, my arm's going to break. It's okay. If I don't tap out, this dude could ruin my whole life. If, if I keep getting hit in the neck like this, you know, like they, they have to be equated to be the same thing, I think. And then refs should call the fight when, you know, when, when the fight's over, if that makes sense, like KO or submission. Yeah, I mean, sure, but you know, we, we all—I think we all know this—that so that's definitely, you know, a cultural thing that would need to be fixed. You know, like I, actually, you know, a couple weeks ago when I came up and visited, we talked about it. How I said personally, I would take much more. I'm not going to say exactly what I said. I said personally, I would take much more damage to my body than ever throw out the towel myself. You know, and it, look, I acknowledge you know, that version of toxic masculinity for sure there are just some people that are like that that they don't want to be the ones to throw out the towel and i think you know at that point it's most definitely up to either their corner because they can i'm pretty sure in the ufc to throw the towel for them or for the uh you know for the refs to do it and i'm not gonna lie like in minute three or actually honestly by minute two i was pretty much done with the fight i was like okay this is definitely this fight should be over by now and then a minute goes by, then another minute goes by, and it's like, okay, this is way over. I mean, I don't maybe I'm wrong, but I felt like it was way over the line because it wasn't like it was like you know, punches and stuff that were getting blocked. They were pretty clean shots to the head, like I would say for a straight minute or two. And by that point, like that's it's more than enough to call it. And if they're mad, they're mad, but like you could thank them later for preventing their brain damage brain damage because it was it wasn't like he was really protecting himself that much you know right i agree that it's definitely a cultural thing but i i do think that it needs to be addressed and may, maybe that's even a part of like the education pro, like provided by ufc you know what i'm saying like i don't know what their initiation or quote rookie program looks like you know like it's i i can tell you it's not anything like the nfl or the nba 
or insert leagues here, you know, that teach their athletes about, you know, how to live as an athlete and then also the dangers of being an athlete too, you know, like there's actual warning signs basically in those leagues that give in-depth stuff. And then I think that part of it is that your corner needs to be like trained professionals that, you know, I mean, a lot of them are comp uh, comprised of former fighters, right? So oh. it's up to the corner. Like you need to protect your fighter. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. Like that's if you're the trainer, do you want to see um, Jose Aldo never fight again, or do you want to see him get out of this fight alive? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. like e even if like that's a tough call, like if you don't see the ref doing it, then that's on you. You know what I'm saying? So like I I think that there, I guess what I'm trying to say is there needs to be more accountability across the board than just on the refs, if that makes sense. No, yeah, sure. yeah. No, I. I mean, I totally agree. I just, I just think with where the UFC right now is probably very comparable to the NFL of the '80s or '90s. You know, the Paul Tagliabue, uh, Tagliabue, right? When he was the commissioner of that era, um, you know, just a little, maybe not even a little, but pretty uh, ignorant, and they they probably know, you know, some of these things. Like, yeah, we should probably do that. But we won't. And you know, what are you gonna do about it? And so that's just that's that's just kind of where I see where the UFC is compared to other, you know, sports leagues. Very nineties or eighties NFL like as of right now, I would say. I mean, it is only like thirty years old. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it would make sense for it to be basically in its uh troubled youth stage, I'll call it. <laughs> could say that yeah sure that's all i have to say about it though yeah same M mainly the you know i'm not going to just throw the ref under the bus i mean yes it's also the ref's job you know but you know there should be like a like it came down to the ref at the last second right like if the ref didn't right. step in then what was going to happen you know like it could have been worse because it from the looks of it it didn't look like Aldo was going to tap out and it didn't look like the trainers were going to throw in the towel, right? Like if they didn't do it already, they weren't going to do it. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. And that's, Aldo. you know, the, the issue is that there came and passed several attempts or several, several times in that fight where the towel could have been thrown in for Aldo and he would have still, nobody would have blamed him for it. You know what I mean? He's protecting his his ego and his honor for nothing. Like nobody's gonna hold it against him for tapping out when he's losing that badly. You know. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's the the arguably just completely right thing to do. It's like just tap out, man. It's not worth again, as we've talked about bodily harm. It's not worth permanent damage to your body. And you know, ref a ref failed that test. Aldo himself failed that test. And, you know, thankfully, Jan still kind of failed the test, too. But, like, thankfully, he was seeing what was happening and wasn't putting himself into that position where he was in that killer stage anymore. You know what I mean? Like, he was he was pulling his punches, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, he definitely was. It, it would have been harder to watch if you could tell that he was going full at his neck like that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, 
way way harder to watch so i know credit to him just a little bit sure good win <laughs> good win <laughs> oh, that's win. what i have to say for and and like you like i believe it was simon who mentioned it earlier jan was in that same position where he was standing over aldo twice this fight in the yeah. first and fifth round and man if only he just ended it in the first round honestly like he, right. he definitely could have he's yeah, got a, no, he's got a sure. mean swing by the way oh, for sure. oh, yeah. like i think he's going to probably like future segment on good take bad take i feel like yan is going to be the champ for a couple of fights honestly like we'll say three. Oh, yeah no <laughs> i absolutely agree i was extremely impressed thought he was very polished off his attack game his um or sorry his uh stand-up game was really good and you know, on the ground he was he was no joke at all either so yeah he's yeah. a nasty fighter i'm excited to see more of him yeah he's, he's definitely better at the stand-up but you know he'd prefer to stay standing up but he can go to the ground if he needs to um and of course the this take revolves around timing and what's happening you know i mean We'll get we'll get to it a bit later, but there's definitely <laughs> some question marks regarding uh, the society that we live in. But anywho, oh. after that, arguably the most controversial fight of the night: Volkanovski versus Holloway. What are your guys' initial takes from this fight? And uh, what you know the the controversy comes from who the decision went to, being that Volkanovski won. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I think Volkanovski won. Okay. I mean, is that it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's all I got. That's all I got. No, he's, uh, I, I think he, he, his, uh, his leg game was so, so dominant that I think that any advantage that, um, I can't think of the other guy's name. Um, Holloway. That Holloway had just didn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. I mean, at one point, I think it was like Volkanovski either threw or hit like 70 plus kicks or something and these weren't just regular kicks you know these are these are big hits these are these are damaging kicks so i think that he uh he took the game with his legs yeah i mean absolutely and i, I could see where the controversy was you know uh, by the way i do think volkanovsky won it, it was close though because Holloway, didn't he knock down Volkanovski twice in the first couple rounds? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so the deal with that is that, you know, um, Volkanovski, like, he, he kind of shook it off and he got up pretty quickly, you know. When they're, when they're scoring, you know, for the UFC, like, you know, obviously they grade things differently based on damage and stuff like that. And you know, if, if you really want to go into depth to that, you could do your own research. But, you know, Volkanovski definitely got up way faster than Holloway probably expected like it wasn't even like it was a pretty smooth get up I'm not gonna lie and then he got right back into it and, and without a beat without missing a beat and so um even though Holloway did put him down to the mat twice even if you watch it it wasn't like it was the hardest like you know hits or whatever it was just like you know hey he caught him uh he still was you know there enough to get up and then you know uh holloway to the ground right he had three takedowns in the in the third fourth and fifth round at the end there i think yeah 
something like that. Either way, in the fifth round, he rallied and most definitely closed the fight, though. Like, it really wasn't that close by the fifth round. So, I think, you know, Volkanovski, he did his job. Holloway, it was a really good effort. But, you know, he he didn't finish. Uh, just being honest, he just didn't finish the fight. What do you think, Cody? First off, um, apparently Holloway didn't have any knockdowns. Um, they didn't count him as knockdowns. Um, Interesting. Just looking, here, just looking here at the box score. And, you know, I guess maybe, maybe it was because we were watching the... Or... Wait, that wasn't the full fight that we watched, was it, Liam? We watched the full fight. We watched the full fight. Hmm. Maybe, maybe I just misremembered. But yeah, this wasn't really close. Looking here at the box score, like I'm not gonna lie, when I initially watched it, you know, I thought Holloway might win. You know, I was like, hey, Holloway, you know, he got some clean strikes in against Volkanovski. You know, I felt like his hits had more of an impact. But that's that's not how it was tallied up. You know, it, if we're looking at the box score here, just talking about straight up numbers there are no knockdowns on either side volkanovsky landed 139 strikes to holloway's 111 and volkanovsky connected on 50 percent versus 40. there was 137 significant strikes from volkanovsky versus 102 from holloway and then, and volkanovsky got three takedowns so i mean if you chop it up like that then it's definitely volkanovsky's fight i guess for me, what I guess what you can look at with some of the controversy with Holloway is that, you know, I feel like Holloway did land some good punches. I think that he played a pretty good defensive game against Volkanovski. I mean, he, Volkanovski did land three takedowns, but that was out of nine attempts versus zero from Holloway. You know what I'm saying? So Holloway played a great defensive game, in my opinion. And, but I, I don't think that's, that's not how he needed to beat Volkanovski. He needed to not leave a doubt, and he didn't do that. So that's why yeah. Volkanovski won the fight, I guess. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I, I 100% agree. Now, Holloway, he had his moments. Like, there are some really nice flashes in the pan between rounds and whatnot, but, uh, I, you know, you, you got to finish. Like, you can't let him just linger around because he'll most definitely score on you that doing that. You know, so and Holloway, I get he's like an you know an older fighter, a veteran fighter. Like this scenario, I guess could be um, comparable to the Jan versus Aldo fight. But you know, as the veteran, you got you kind of got to push it. You know, you can't let a young guy just whatever he wants to you, and then like not retaliate back consistently. You know what I mean? And I feel like I saw that a lot from Holloway. Um, it's crazy that they didn't count two uh knockdowns because they most definitely look like knockdowns like he hit him and he fell down and then got back up real quick maybe that's it but i mean i don't know but i mean i should say all you need to really know about this fight then if they didn't count those you know what where do you think holloway goes from here seeing that he's lost three of his last four matches Oof. Three of the last four really <laughs> I didn't think it was like that. I I mean, I don't think he's going to retire anytime soon. He seems like one of those fighters that'll fight it out for uh, for a little bit longer. So he'll probably get, you know, one or more, I'd say at least one more serious, you know, fight chance or whatever eventually. 
you know, you, you got to get a fight to get your confidence back under your belt. And then, and then that opportunity will present itself. But you know, he is kind of up there, I feel. And he's had a solid career. So it is what it is. There's there's some talk of him moving up to lightweight and bulking up, but I don't know if that's a good idea. He's no, don't he should do that. <laughs> he already looks. I don't know. He already doesn't even look like he should be in featherweight TBH. So yeah, yeah. Just you know, it, you know, once once you get old enough, I think we all know this. It's harder to move between weight classes, so you might as well stick it out with this weight class because you kind of have to. I feel like by this point. I just don't see Holloway competing for a belt with how loaded this featherweight weight class is. Yeah. I mean, okay, well, I, I don't think he's going to compete for a belt. I feel like he'll fight somebody who's an up-and-comer as, like, you know, for that up-and-comer, like, beating Holloway would be a stepping stone type of thing. Like, hey, I beat a veteran type of fight, you know? And there's, I mean, there's plenty of room for that, and... um you know, UFC needs that. They need that role of, like, the veteran fighter who, in his heyday, was really good. But now he's kind of just one of those stepping stone fighters. And, um, you know, there's still a lot of respect to be gained there. And there's still a lot of money to be earned there um, on those on those cards. So, you know, there's still a career for him in this. Even if he is on a downward spiral. <laughs> that's i mean that's pretty true though i mean no we've been kind of rough but i feel like that's pretty true there's always that guy that needs to be you know the torch hander so i guess right. that's uh, that's that's holloway's job as of now which sounds a little depressing but you never know yeah maybe he'll pull it back together and you know make a thunder title run or yeah who knows? Yeah, no absolutely or you know he upsets like an up-and-comer and well there's a lot of money to be made there for sure still money to be made i feel it just depends on what holloway wants to do yeah of course so i don't have anything else for this fight are we on to the i mean they were called the co-main but the main fight of the night yeah do it so the last fight of the night was kamaro uzman who was supposed to face somebody else. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but luckily, because they tested positive for COVID, um, Masvidal stepped in. So this wasn't the fight that we were originally supposed to get, but I think it turned out to be an entertaining fight um, that Usman definitively won. I mean, it came down to decision, but Usman definitely had his way during this fight. Anyone disagree with that? No. Oh, I mean, did anybody really expect Jorge Masvidal to win this fight? If you know, under a week's notice, really, because he has to travel. No, I think you know. I think he did well. All I think he even surpassed expectations. All things considered, honestly, like just being yeah. kind of thrown into the fire. Like he still put up a good fight you know what i'm saying and it's still sold pretty highly on pay-per-view might i might i add on like people weren't disappointed they weren't like oh it's masvidal they're like oh okay you know so <laughs> yeah i mean, no for sure i mean honestly he 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 did his role he did his job you know he 
he uh he challenged Usman for sure. He a pretty solid fight. Didn't they go uh, all five rounds? Yeah. Yeah. They they went all five rounds, but it was unanimous decision. Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, he still did his job, just like we were talking about with Holloway and Volkanovski. Like, feel. I mean, okay. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you know, Hey Masvidal is definitely not. Oh, young Jorge Masvidal, if you know what I mean. He is definitely at that stage where he himself is a torch um, carrier, torch changer, whatever you want to say. You know, like He's a kind of an older veteran who you know, can be seen as a stepping stone fight to some fighters. And it sucks to say it that way, but it really kind of came off as that way, in my opinion, to me. And um, Usman, hey, all the credit to him. It was a solid you know it was a solid win because masvidal is always going to be ready to go and you know he he isn't that old yet you know so he could still go but i mean let's not get it twisted like this wasn't most inner i i how should i say this it was entertaining i just wouldn't say it was the most important out of the night to a degree you know no i definitely agree because it, i mean no one expected masvidal to win the belt you know what i'm saying so, I mean, like like we said, he had six days notice for this fight. So there's a lot that you can't accomplish there as far as, you know, preparing for a fight strategy. Like at that point, you just got to hope for the best, honestly. And Usman yeah. is no is no slouch either. You know, like he, he'd have been the favorite probably no matter who he was facing off against, right? So... And, and he left no doubt either. I mean, he was an absolute animal through all five rounds. I mean, uh, I saw this stat where Usman controlled the clench for 10 minutes of the 25-minute fight. Jeez. Like, he he just kind of bullied Masvidal, especially on the ground. And, you know, even standing up, I mean, Masvidal came out, like, kind of hot, but that you can't... <laughs> You got to end the fight before it starts, honestly, if you're coming into the challenger's ring or sure. yeah, the champ's ring. I mean, yeah, and yeah for sure. And oh, Usman, he, that's just his game, you know, clinching people, manhandling them. Like, I wouldn't say he's the flashiest, like, knockout artist or like someone who could definitely be a submit artist, you know, but he kind of just wears you down. <laughs> and it's like, though, honestly, like, just from personal experience i would say that those are the fighters that are like the most annoying to go up against you know the kind that like they could you know they could wait the long game right but they're not gonna wait too long and they're gonna make their point and then they're just gonna kind of drag you around and like you know, just just dominate you like i think it's most comparable to like how an anaconda kills you know like kind of slowly but they slowly just squeeze the life out of you type of fighting you know yeah definitely I would even go as far as to say that those people, those type of fighters are like the most worrisome in my yes. mind. You know what I mean? Because it's like, well, you know, going up against somebody who's a submission artist or, you know, just ready to knock people out. It's like, well, I'm either going to get knocked out or I'm not, right? But going oh. up against the, the fighters who are really super technical and super patient with it, it's like, you really have to build a game plan about it. Yeah. I mean, no, ab absolutely, you know, and those fighters are usually the best conditioned ones because they have to be. 
know, because they can't, you know, execute their game plan if they're not, you know, physically there to execute their game plan. You know what I mean? Like they kind of they got to have all their energy and whatnot. Oh my gosh, who's the fighter who fought Justin Gaethje in that last UFC matchup that you and me talked about, Cody? Oh my gosh, I'm blanking out on his name. Anyways, that fighter. Uh, hold up, Tony Ferguson is that his name? Right. Looking at yeah, it's yes, Ferguson. yes, yes, yes. Tony Ferguson. <laughs> sure. Ferguson, in my opinion, was one of those fighters. Uh, in my opinion, though, Ferguson definitely had you know more knockout ability, but he was one of those fighters, kind of similar to Usman, at least stylistic wise. That you know, kind of just wears you down, is a little unconventional in a way, and it's really annoying to go up against because you can't just like, you know you you as the fighter against or as the opponent against one of them you can't just force the issue because that's how you make a mistake you kind of got to be disciplined with it and you know those fighters are most they're so dangerous i'll tell you what so i mean i look forward to seeing uzman play or not play fight a guy that's you know i guess maybe a little bit more closer to his age or career wise you know at the same spot as him but, uh, this was a solid fight, though. Usman definitely manhandled Masvidal, though. So, y'all have anything to add, or? <laughs> no, I agree. I don't have anything else to say about this fight or any of the fights because I didn't watch the prelims. So, yeah, um, yeah, me neither. I love covering UFC. It was really fun, actually, looking into all these fights, um, stuff like that. You know, for these. I mean, I myself am a fighter, so, well, okay, not an active fighter, but, you know, have background in that, so I love it. Yeah, it's definitely a nice change of pace, and it's nice to have some sports, some live sports to talk about, so. True. But if that's all for this segment, coming up next, we have conferences opting to only play in conference. Coming up. good y'all welcome back to the 41st episode of the cycle 365 we are now gonna talk some college sports you know uh well because you know i feel like we've talked a lot about college football but the news that has come out in the last week definitely involves college football and all fall sports for that and so we're gonna start uh i'm just gonna run it off real quick and then i'll let y'all react to it but uh, i think for sure the ivy league was the first one to say uh they were not gonna that they were gonna cancel fall sports and not play this fall at least so that counts you know the sports that would count for is basketball football volleyball just to name a few those are some of the major ones and this is the first time that oh my gosh this is the first time that harvard and a yale won't be playing each other since the 1940s and obviously that was during Jeez. world war ii um go so that's a pretty big deal and then right after they announced that like pretty soon after i would say the big 10 announced that they would play conference only games and the pac-12 announced that they would play conference only games um and that's for all sports for sure and that that actually you know affects a lot of different teams as well including our very own university of northern colorado 
lastly i think it was just announced today i want to say uh one of the fcs um schools like division one but lower division one the patriot league announced that they were not going to play fall sports or is it just football it might just be football actually yeah. um no it's it's fall sports yeah so the patriot league announced that they're canceling fall sports so all sports not just football as well and so yep Liam, Cody, what do y'all think what are y'all's initial reactions to these cancellations slash conference only regulations leave me if you want to go first um i think it's a, i think it's a good decision it's gonna suck obviously um with a lot of things that are happening in the the sports world a lot of things that are happening for the students and the the athletes that are uh looking for scholarships and looking for playtime and exposure um but i think ultimately there's something greater at hand which is the fact that we have not come to control this uh this thing that's going on this COVID 19 thing in our own country and we need to just stamp down on it i'm going to echo liam's sentiment that you know i, th I think that this is for the better and you know th the acc is also talking about moving to conference only they said that they're pretty close the sec said that they're not going to make any decisions until later this july so later this month because i think that they're trying to postpone okay what so i've been talking to a couple of football coaches being that i coach in high school and you know a lot of these coaches think that these conferences by moving to conference only are trying to buy time right so they're hoping that by the time it would be conference only play that COVID 19 is starting to get contained because it is nowhere near contained and it is getting worse literally every single day and i think that canceling conference play is maybe the smartest thing to do if you want or canceling non-conference play pardon me is the smartest thing to do if you want a chance to play any sports at all and i mean there are some like Simon said, you know, it, it's bigger than just football too. You have volleyball, you have women's soccer in the fall as well. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of good competition and Simon even talked about, you know, it, it, it affects other schools too, you know? So there's some matchups that you won't see like, so for the PAC 12, right? CU won't play Nebraska. There's no chance to play Nebraska because they're in the PAC 12. And so by going to conference only, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, as well, I, it, there's a lot that I was realizing when I saw that the Pac-12 was going conference only. But in addition to that, CU won't be playing CSU in the Rocky Mountain Showdown for the first time in I don't even know when. But it pro probably decades, if I'm being honest. Probably decades. Because CSU is not in the Pac-12, even though they are in the same state. And so that will be really interesting to see. I know, I don't know if I actually mentioned it, but I know Northern Colorado, our volleyball team, we were actually supposed to host USC and Washington State's uh, volleyball team, but now that's not going to happen. So for our alma mater and then, you know, Liam's current school, Northern Colorado, they would have to rearrange their schedules around because it's two whole games and not playing at the beginning of the season. And... And I think, no, I agree. This is a great decision, but 
what I want to ask y'all is, do y'all think this is the beginning of the end for college sports? As in the end of... Okay, here, let me, let me, let me make that a little bit more clear. But when I say the beginning of the end, I mean, do you think that this will eventually lead to the ultimate you know, lockdown, as some people would say, or cancellation of fall sports completely? Or, you know, even college sports completely? This is definitely a beginning of it. Um, I'm not sure if this is like, this, well, okay. So I should say this is where it, it begins, right? If it's going to be a true cancellation of fall sports. I'm not sure if this is the actual beginning of the end, but if it is, it starts here and it will, it will continue. This is not this, this is not just the start of it. Um, we might see certain programs or certain uh, conferences decide that they want to keep going regardless. Um, but this list is definitely going to keep growing no matter what. I mean, I think that, you know, okay, all these, all these programs, all these conferences, they're trying to buy time, right? They're trying to see if it's going to get better. But the worst part is that this is like, this is as worse as, or as bad as it can get, right? But there's no actions being taken to counteract what's happening right now. And, you know, we're, we're thinking about opening up schools again. And, you know, there's already projections on how many children are going to die when we go back to school. And that's on, that's on all levels, right? That's like public education schools, right? Like, we're talking catastrophic, you know repercussions for trying to open the country too soon right like and 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 we're seeing it now and because we couldn't figure it out as soon as it was happening now it's a future problem and it's about to be these schools' problem and these schools are pressured to stay open because okay football generates so much money for schools even even slash especially for small schools. And what Simon was talking about with USC and what'd you say, Washington State for volleyball, Simon? Yeah. Yeah. So th those teams coming to UNC is great for, you know, selling tickets, you know, and maybe even broadcasting, getting, getting more people to watch it and also getting UNC's name out there, right? Like there's a whole bunch of opportunities that have just been robbed of our small school because we didn't figure it out earlier this year, right? And... You know, you have the, and I know that some people at CSU are talking about moving to conference only being the Mountain West. So that means that UNC wouldn't get to play CSU at their new stadium this year, which was also supposed to happen, right? So I feel like a lot of these con conferences are going to move to conference only. And, you know, I try to be optimistic, right? I want sports to come back. I want to believe that we can figure this out, right? But there's not a change in national leadership potentially until November. And even then we're not sure. Right. And if this continues to be treated with the same disregard and lack of seriousness that it has been, sports are going to be canceled or people are going to die. So I think that this is going to be a real gut check slash morality test for, for colleges that now have to face the same question. And for sports programs who now have to face the same question that, lots of corporations and companies have already answered and knowing what the answers have been, it makes me a little worried. I'm not going to lie. It makes me really worried about 
the safety of student athletes, the safety of coaches and the safety of staff at these schools, because even conference only, there's still going to be some traveling in there. I mean, CU is going to have to go to California, right? And they're going to have to go to Washington, which, you know, there's a bunch of cases there and traveling increases the chances of contracting COVID-19. So I'm very, very concerned about the safety first and foremost of these programs, as well as the financial stability and how many of these will be able to weather the storm. And the answer is not a lot because there's only five, there's only five schools in this entire country that run a, that run a profitable athletic department. So a lot like UNC, if we don't have any sports, it, there can be some large scale repercussions to what could happen in the fall. That's all I'm going to say about it is that yeah. there's a lot at stake and it's not looking good. Yeah. Especially oh. with big time, you know, big media acquisitions like uh, Ed McCaffrey for the UNC football program. You know, everybody expects him to bring change to UNC. And if we don't get to play this year, what was all that money for? Right. Or that's the question that a lot of people will be asking at the very least. Well, it's like, do you think that we can keep Ed McCaffrey if you don't make any money this year? And the answer yeah, exactly. is probably not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Probably not. He would have to restructure his contract. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll just put in my two cents before we close up. Or, okay, not before we close up, but before we go on to the next segment. I personally think that this is the beginning of the end. Because... Look, I want to be optimistic just as much as anybody. I would love to see sports happen. If not for, you know, one FBS college football, I would love to see, you know, Northern Colorado play CSU or play anybody, to be honest. I just don't think that there is enough, there's enough positive progression to even be in that mindset right now, just with how, you know, how the leadership of our country is handling everything where you know what what the patterns have shown as of now you know from the past and whatnot i'm just not confident and i could tell you right now you know uh, earlier this week donald trump and the secretary secretary of education betsy devos both threatened you know public schools saying that they would cut funding if they don't go back to school and i'm not gonna lie like just from what i've heard from fellow teachers seeing what i see on twitter and you know tiktok even social media whatever um, a lot of teachers are willing to call them out on that bluff. Once that happens, we'll see what goes down because they would love to see them you know, basically essentially fire plenty of teachers that are not core class teachers, uh, which I'm not gonna lie, would include me. But at the same time, that's just where the United States is right now. Like we got pretty much a showdown between the education, the public education system and then the government. And if that's happening, then I find it hard to believe that sports will happen. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, if the schools aren't open, then, you know, I, I find it hard to see, hard to believe and see, you know, sports happening this fall or in the spring or anytime moving forward, if I'm being honest, unless it's a professional sports league, because they run by different standards. But if it's college sports, whether it's, high school or middle school as well you know they're all in the same boat and it's a sinking one that you know as much as i want to be optimistic and look the other way it doesn't mean the boat's still not sinking so all i gotta say true is that it? Liam, do you have do you have anything else to add on 
I believe. Yeah. Simon and I unloaded our two cents that weighs more like twenty five. Yeah. No, I, I think it's uh, it's it's pretty straightforward and standard. I think we all basically agree on the same thing. Yeah. Well, that being said, we are going to move on to our next segment. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the top five offensive linemen of all time. As uh, someone who played a lot of offensive line, I'm kind of excited to talk about this one. It's a little weird, but, you know, up next. Welcome back to the cycle 365 this is episode 41 and we are now going to talk about our top five offensive linemen of all time and you know this is kind of a tough list i'm not gonna lie like it's pretty interchangeable you know to a degree i think in my opinion this might be one of the most interchangeable all-time lists but that's just my opinion and just go throw this out there i did play offensive line i've coached a lot of it and so i i feel like i know what i'm talking about to a degree we're just gonna jump into it so my list i'll go explain any of them i'm just gonna go five four three two one and you know y'all could go next and then we'll uh, react to it per usual at number five i have left guard larry allen of famously the dallas cowboys number four i have the center for the pittsburgh steelers mike webster at number three, I have all-around lineman. He played a bunch of different positions. The Houston Oilers, I want to say, Bruce Matthews. At number two, we have the Green Bay Packers legend himself, Forrest Gregg. And at number one, we have arguably the undisputed number one offensive lineman of all time, and Anthony Munoz, the left tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals. Hey, so Cody, Liam, either one of y'all want to go next? I'll go next. So yeah. I have from now, I, I do want to mention that my five is really, first off, my top five are really close to Simon's. It's just the order that's a little bit different and that my five through six, seven, eight could be pretty interchangeable. So at number five, I have Mike Webster, center for the Pittsburgh Steelers, nine Pro Bowls, four Super Bowl championships pretty good resume at number four this is the only one that i had that simon didn't john Hanna, um primarily a guard but played everywhere along the offense nine pro bowls seven all pro teams he was all he was a four-time lineman of the year recipient from the nflpa at number three i have bruce matthews overall offensive lineman as simon said for the houston oilers with 14 pro bowls which is amongst the most in nfl history at number two, I have Larry Allen, who played guard as well as tackle, and he made um, Pro Bowl at three different positions, and also was the part of the All Decades team through the 90s and 2000s. And at number one, I'm going to echo Simon's sentiment, Anthony Munoz, with 11 Pro Bowls and nine First Team All Pros as the undisputed best lineman of all time. Liam, all right. <clears throat> balls in your court. It, it's kind of weird i have the same uh four through one that simon has uh so i'll just go over them yeah exactly like exactly the same so number one i got anthony munoz i think it's it's uh it's it's hard to argue against him uh number two i got forrest greg number three bruce matthews number four mike webster and then number five 
uh, the only different lineman than both of you, I think. I can't remember if Cody said him. Uh, but left tackle for the Cleveland Browns, Joe Thomas. That's a good Oh, okay. Oh, what do you want to go about this? You want to briefly talk about the number one selection that we all had in Munoz? I mean, I think it's pretty accepted in most football circles and most, you know, NFL circles that Munoz is the best lineman of all time and that he was impenetrable at his best and really athletic for as big as he was. I would say he definitely modernized uh, the lineman position to a degree. I'm not going to lie. Like when it comes to offensive line, there's not like now a lot of like evolutionaries. I would say the, the position has been played pretty much the same for a really long time. You know, the only real difference at the position is that people are just getting bigger. And as they're getting bigger, they're getting surprisingly more athletic somehow. That's pretty much it. And so, you know, he was just one of those athletic freaks. That's it. Liam, do you want to do you want to tell us about your take on Munoz? Um, I just got to echo Simon, and I think you will as well. Uh, he, he's just stellar. Um, really, kind of almost like too clean of a player, too too perfect as far as offensive line goes. I don't think he had really like almost any injuries or any big injuries at all just you know a player that was blessed honestly with um <laughs> with skill and size speed basically everything that you can be blessed with for an offensive line he met i mean he was he's durable as well just hell of a player you guys know that he's a uh college championship pitcher as well right what really yep national championship yep Really? Yep. Go play quarterback. <laughs> he, he about to take Boomer's job. The only thing I can say about Munoz that, that might be arguable for somebody else on the list to take the number one spot is he, he didn't have any Super Bowl wins, even though he did start in two Super Bowls. Yep. Yeah. That's what happens when you play for the Bengals. Yeah. <laughs> for the Bungalow. <laughs> I mean, I those, mean, those I, Niners games were close. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, everyone still expected the Niners to win for a reason, though. Oh, for sure. Oh. I mean, those were loaded teams, so. Sure, yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, Munoz is uh, honestly, in my opinion, he's somebody who would be probably the best in the league if he played right now, I would say. I don't think y'all would dispute me on that. I feel like that's pretty. It's a pretty safe take, almost. Uh, he. I mean, I'll he's a little be... underweight for for now, because he was yeah. about two eighty, six six. Uh, so if he could put on 30, 40 pounds and join join the weight class, you know, I sure. think sure for sure for sure. I think he'd be fine at the tackle position just because he's so athletic, and the edge rushers today are athletic. You know, I feel like Munoz could block a guy like Von Miller could block a guy like Khalil Mack, you know, cause he was also really, he was strong as an ox. And, you know, I'd say that a lot of the DNs that were rushing DNs, you know, they were arguably 
I mean, I'll say bigger in like mass, like definitely not as fast as some of the edge rushers that we see today. Like that was definitely like a revolution in and of itself. But I think that Munoz could definitely take them on because they're they're a bit uh, like he's quick enough, if that makes sense. And he's very fundamentally sound as well. Yeah. Oh, he was the king of leverage back in the day, you know, his hands were so fast and he would get his leverage right up in there. And I think it would translate pretty well. I do agree that he could probably put on, you know, 20 to 30 pounds. But I feel like, you know, with today's, like, athletic training and stuff like that, that would be pretty easy compared to, you know, where he was back then in the 80s, sure. early 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last thing I want to say about Munoz is uh, shout out to him being a uh, pretty solid receiver as far as alignment goes. Yeah, he caught four touchdowns. Four. Yep. He was also a man of the year winner yeah. as well. So good dude. Yeah. It's always needed. You so durability's oh, sorry, go on. I was just saying you love to see good off the field behavior. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just gonna add that durability uh before we move on is gonna be a pretty big like I would say it's a pretty big mark of success as an offensive lineman because especially in the NFL because it's tough like you're going against huge dudes every day you know your joints are getting grinded you're like in the trenches and you don't really take plays off because you're always making contact so durability is a really big deal here for me um at least when I graded these linemen yeah I think that that's a good um transition as well because I was also going to say that for me so I, so you guys both had Forrest Gregg at number two, and he just missed mine at, he's at number six. He's right behind Mike Webster. And I feel yep. like part of it for me was I felt pressured to put a center, like a true center on my list, because they're just so different from tackles and guards as far as what their responsibilities are. And, you know, Mike Webster having won four Super Bowls, he had a lot to do with those Super Bowls and playing smart and making everyone around him better. And another thing with Forrest Gregg for me is that, like, he had some other dudes around him, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, if there is, if there is, like, a discussion of, like, two people, you know, being, like, amongst the greatest of all time, like, one might take away from the other. The only exception that I had for that was probably Bruce Matthews and uh, Mike Munchak. But Bruce Matthews was just so versatile that it kind of overrode. Munchak, where whereas Greg was a tackle true and true, if that makes sense. So he is at number six, and he could easily be number five if I didn't feel pressured to have like position representation. It's it's really hard to judge it with, you know, I mean, literally at all three different offensive lineman positions, and even depending on where you are on the field, your job is completely different. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I get that he. Of course, Greg was kind of an older guy, and he wasn't as versatile. Um, for me, I just couldn't ignore. For me, I couldn't ignore the seven championship squads he was on. You know, he was on five NFL title squads with the Packers, and as well as two Super Bowls with the Packers, playing right tackle. You know, he was. I mean, you know, Lombardi said it himself. He was very useful. He was a great player. You know, because they would run the power sweep you know, a lot, where the right tackle, you know, would. Um, usually lead on that, right? And so, 
Also, he played like 188 straight games between 1956 and 1971. You know, and in an era where like you know there's a lot more running plays than passing plays. Like as an offensive lineman, like I think for everyone it's a little bit different, but personally for me, like running plays are most definitely way more taxing passing plays because running plays like you got to get into your guy and even after you lay him out you got to get into the next level quickly you know passing game uh pass blocking wise you know you're kind of still at the same spot and yeah you might block oh you know, one guy and then a blitz or two but it's not that same urgency where you gotta like all right i'm gonna dump this dude and then i'm gonna get on to the next linebacker and then after that to the safety and stuff like that so that's why I respect, you know, run block guys so much or guys who are so good at it consistently because it's hard to do, especially playing 188 straight games, an era where you're basically running the ball most like 90% of the time. Um, to me, that just that says a lot about his durability, um, you know, his his work ethic as a champion being on seven of those squads. And I feel like I really had no choice to put him at number two just because he was a you know, if there was any, he was a revolutionary, he was durable, and he has more rings than, honestly, some of the guys that we have on other top five lists have all together, so. Oh, he has more rings than than my entire top five list, because I think, including NFL titles, that is. Yeah. Um, Mike Webster, four Super Bowls, Larry Allen, one Super Bowl. I think that's it. Right. Yeah. Sam, did you have anything to add on to that? Uh, not really for Mike Webster. I think you guys said it all, basically. Uh, I would say for Forrest Gregg, as a uh, plus to him, he coached Anthony Munoz. So not only is he... Ooh. he not, not only is he one of the greatest of all time, he knew how to make the greatest of all time. You know, He knew how to start him off. He coached him for, for the first three years of his career. So, oh. or first four years, actually, 80 to uh, 83. That's so, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So that, that in my mind, I know it's, it's coaching and not actually actively playing. Right. But that's still a big boost in my mind for why he's high up. Well, sure. and, and I mean, Lombardi said that Greg was the best player that he coached ever. I don't know if you guys caught that quote in your research, but yeah, yeah. that definitely goes a long way in. Man, this list was tough. There's, uh, like, I, I I like my one through four, but also I feel like Forrest Craig could also be number two. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, honestly, linemen are, I think we all know this, they're really important. <laughs> uh, for a lot of teams, they could be the heart and soul of that team, you know, or even, obviously, whether, you know, that team is successful or not. And so... I think it is kind of hard to grade some of these guys because it's you know it's a kind of a simplistic you know position but it's so important you know and you know you really don't know like yes how smart an offensive lineman is unless you talk to him like or sorry i guess how smart offensive linemen are compared to each other unless you talk to all of them and pick their brains you know but you know the fact that he did coach anthony munoz should say that you know he was obviously a smart you know offensive lineman one of the smarter ones you know to ever play the game and so i, I just thought you know he deserves his, his due right here also he's a texas guy so there you go wow yeah, Colorado, so uh you know we we know where his, <laughs> his true loyalty lay oh 
Oh, wow, you only died last year. Scrag? Yeah, Forrest Greg died last year in Colorado Springs. April 12th, 2019. In Colorado Springs? Yeah, Colorado Springs. Where were you, Simon? I was in Greeley, probably. Oh, my God. Not that it matters. <laughs> that would have been weird if I just went to his funeral, but... Oh, my God. Anyways, that's... <laughs> I did not know that. Um, wow, that's kind of crazy. That's actually... That's a really long time for an offensive lineman, especially yep. some of the other people on this list, but with, we'll move with on. The, with the era, too. Right. You yeah. know, I think, a, I think a great transition is to talk about the guy who is number three on all of our lists, and that's Bruce Matthews, overall utility lineman for the Houston Oilers predominantly. And if we want to talk about durability, 296 games. It's still amongst the highest of all time played by an NFL player. Yeah. Hey, bro, he played for 18 years in the NFL. That's two... At almost, actually, almost that is three different decades he's played in, technically. Yeah. Yeah. And he made the Pro Bowl in 14 of them. So, like, he wasn't <laughs> just there, you know, like that, that is, that is an NFL. I'm pretty sure it's still an NFL record for most Pro Bowls by, you know, not like a kicker or puncher, but by a position player with 14. And it's the most amongst all linemen as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he played seven, at least 17 games at all five positions. First off, that's really hard to do, <laughs> you know. Um, switching from position to position, like I said, it's like we said, I guess, it's a pretty simplistic position, like, you know, block the guy in front of you, pretty much. But from position to position, there are different, you know, objectives you have and to play at least 17 games at each position and, you know, be a pro bowler, 14 out of 18 positions. Uh, seasons that's really good and i thought even go cap bro like i really did he he has a pretty significant you know um argument for being one of the best offensive linemen of all time for sure for and sure. uh he i mean he played 99 games as a left guard 87 games as a center 67 as a right guard 22 as a right tackle and then 17 as a left tackle and not only that but he was the snapper on field goals, uh, PATs, and punts. So he he basically played six positions. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he never pretty... missed a game due to injury. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty inspirational. I'm not even going to cap. I mean, we all know about, you know, the Matthews family and the football tree they have. It's one of the best, you know, in NFL history. But you know, Bruce Matthews was, you know, he, got, he was the OG back in the day. One of the OG. So the respect to him he was great and honestly he low-key can be higher than three uh, you know it is what it is he was one of the ogs being offensive guard but um I, also, <laughs> but I just i want to say that um you know if you want to talk about the systems that he played into the bum phillips teams is what i'm talking about in houston they were run 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 teams you know <laughs> like they yeah. handed the ball off every single down third and eight don't care we're gonna hand the ball off and i think when you have a guy like bruce matthews that plays a huge role in it and the legacy yeah. like you know we we've said you know we've talked about super bowls and how much that plays into a lineman's legacy but i think that this is a bit different you know like linemen like so I feel like when I was doing my research for this, I knew a lot of these names already because growing up, my dad stressed the importance, like 
Cody, linemen are the most important people on the field. You know, like they're the unsung heroes, you know, but without a good line, you really can't go that far. Like everyone else has to be elite, basically, if you're going to make it without a line. And even then, even then, you know, that that's a lot to ask for. So having like just these guys who stay on the grind and, you know, they make guys like Warren Moon and Earl Campbell famous in Bruce Matthews position. We'll talk to, we'll talk about Larry Allen here in a bit, but Larry Allen paving the way for Emmett Smith for a few years. Like, you know, they don't get the glory, but it's you need to know their names and you need to recognize them and give them their due. And Bruce Matthews is just he was a dog. And, you know, you could make an argument from versatility standpoint alone that he may be the best offensive lineman of all time. And I feel like Super Bowls aren't as important until you get to maybe like the center position is what I would argue just because as, as far as like being a leader of an offensive line and making everyone better around you. But Bruce Matthews didn't make everyone better. He just played every position. <laughs> yeah. That's he still said, pretty good. Do it myself. And you know, you, you'll take that. You know, I, I, oh my gosh. I love coaching offensive linemen. It's so great. I think everyone knows how important old linemen are. At least, you know, football players do there's always that one diva or two but i think everyone knows how important offensive linemen <clears throat> how the how important the position is and especially how important durability is and you know bruce he, bruce matthews he had it all i would say anyways moving forward bit real quick uh, liam did you have mike webster on your list at all yeah i have mike webster at uh number four. Oh, okay oh same as me wait cody yeah. did you I have number five. Okay. Um, I know we talked about him a little bit, but I mean, I feel like he's undisputedly the best center of all time. Uh, I'm going to hit the pause button on that because okay. I, I won't say undisputed, and that's because Jim Otto exists. I went back and forth okay. pretty hard between Jim Otto and Mike Webster because if you include like AFL, standings and championships you know jim otto was around for a long time and he put in some serious work and also had more pro bowls and more all pro appearances i did give webster the edge due to just the dominance and you know otto got to play with some other dudes um he got to play with gene upshaw a little bit you know so that versus mike webster where I mean, I can't name a single other lineman from those Steelers teams on the offensive side of the ball. So that's kind of what edged it out. But I wouldn't say it's like end-all, be-all. You know, you can make arguments for either one. As well as, I'm sorry, I'm kind of ranting a little bit here, but Mel Hine, this may be an unfamiliar name because it was back in the 30s, and this is way old, it's still NFL. He was a center, and he won MVP. So... Granted, he played both sides of the ball, but still. <laughs> Only offensive that... lineman to have ever won an MVP. Just saying. Uh, all right. Sure. Yeah. Give it to him. Yeah. Jim Otto definitely has a argument. You know, but, you know, there is, right, Gene Upshaw. And ah, that's, I mean, Upshaw barely missed this list, to be honest. So that's Same. why I'm giving Mike Webster, Iron Mike, the, um, of the best spot for a center he's actually the only center on this list actually true center so there you go but uh yeah 
mean, rest in peace. Uh, he was a four-time champ for the Steelers, but he also got to, you know, mentor <clears throat> other, not, okay. I don't want to say the other great Steelers center, but now that I think about it, probably the next best Steelers center of all time, Dermonte Dawson, who eventually became a Hall of Famer after him as well. So there's that as well. <clears throat> you know, played in 220 games, which is Steelers record. Uh, 15 seasons, which feel like Big Ben might be close to breaking it if he already hasn't. If he already, I don't know. I think Big Ben has broken that by now. Uh, at the time, it was a franchise record. And, you know, if that doesn't say durability, I don't know what does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, playing center is probably one of the harder defensive line positions, I would say, as well, because there's uh, there's just so much you got to do between the snap and, you know, calling out blitzes and pass block, run block, uh, you know, situations. So, I, I mean, I give him a lot of credit here. He's still at only number four for me, though. So... Liam, do you have anything else to add on about Webster? Mike Webster? Yeah. Um, not really. All right. Well, I think that takes us, that's kind of a transition towards the last agreement on our lists. And that was Simon and I, not necessarily in order, but both having Larry Allen. I'm going to go ahead and talk about Larry Allen. I'm not even kidding. I almost put him at number one just because... I mean, gosh, he was, he's probably the scariest offensive lineman to ever play the game. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever saw his combine, but he squatted and deadlifted 900 pounds. And I think he benched 450? I think he benched 450. And then during the Pro Bowl in like 2003, he repped 225 pounds 43 times. Like, Larry Allen was a tank, and he was fast too. Like... He would pull, knock down three three guys on defense, and then outrun the running back to the end zone. Like, as far as just, like, raw athletic talent, and then also, you know, being a student of the game, having made the Pro Bowl at three different positions, you know, I think that Larry Allen is one of the best. He also has a Super Bowl to his name, so that's why that kind of bolted him up a little bit, up to number two. And, you know, I think that you don't have as big of a reputation for the the boys back in the 90s if Larry Allen isn't there paving holes for Emmett Smith and giving Troy Aikman five years to just throw up a jump ball to Michael Irvin. I still no put put no respect on Troy Aikman's name. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're right. I, I have him at number five. Don't get it twisted. I most definitely thought about putting him at even number one or two, three, four, you know, honestly, like I really did uh, consider him for those positions, but I had to push him to number five just because of where, you know, where everyone else's accomplishments are championship wise and durability wise. And you know, it, it's unfair to a degree, but he is one of the best of all time. One of the best guards to ever play the game. And yeah, no, he was super athletic. Um, I'm not even go cap. Like I wish I could put him higher, but I just, I really just felt like I couldn't. Um, I, okay, so this is where, you know, lists start connecting for me. If y'all remember my top five running backs of all time, I most definitely said Emmett Smith is not the best running back of all time because of Larry Allen. And that's why he took that hit. And so I feel like I couldn't have said that without putting Larry Allen on this list. And that's why he's on here. And I just think, 
And honestly, if it comes down to it, he's just a better lineman than John Hanna, who was the next guy up, in my opinion. So that's why he's here. He was an athletic freak, and that's it. Oh, oh and, you know, he helped out the Cowboys' legacy and all that as well. So there you go. That's a, That makes for a, a good transition because John Han- I was the only one who put John Hanna on my list, I believe. Being so, John Hanna was on my list, whereas Forrest Gregg was on your guys' list. And we'll get to Liam not having Larry Allen on in a second because there's a good talk about Joe Thomas. But John Hanna, he was he was an all decade guy for the 1970s and the 1980s, and I think that that's always impressive too. Where you know, Larry Allen also 90s and 2000s all decade kind of guy, John Hanna, he he won the most NFLPA awards for lineman of the year and this was during a time where matthews munoz and webster were all around i want to point out he he won it four times he also had seven all pro teams which is the exact same as bruce matthews and nine pro bowls so he has the i guess the recognition to to back it up and and i remember like reading about him as a kid. And I remember my grandpa talking about him all the time. I was like, what the heck? My, my grandpa knew who his offensive linemen were back in the seventies. Like that's insane. You know, <laughs> like, especially for, and Hannah was another guy who was very versatile. You know, he was primarily a guard, but he also played center when called upon. And he also played tackle when called upon. And I feel like versatility played a huge role in deciding my overall list. Hence the reason why I have, Allen, Matthews, and then Hannah being that, you know, they have one position that they might be recognized most for being guard, but they were also just like utility knives on the offensive line. So that's why Hannah makes my list at number four is, you know, the versatility just continues to blow me away and the lineman of the year awards from that are judged upon by your peers, by the way. So, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, like I said, he's someone who probably deserves to be on a, on a top five offensive lineman list. He's just not on mine. And, you know, he was right outside. And you know, when you get to great players, we've talked about this a billion times. When you get to great players, you start splitting hairs. And the hair I had to split for Hannah was that Super Bowl loss to, those, uh, to that dominant Bears team. And look, I know it's not his fault that, you know, he, <laughs> he he didn't have a better team than that bear squad but hey you know larry allen has a super bowl ring so there you go and i mean it's really not that big of a deal he's still a great player but that super bowl stuck out to me and i hate that i have to judge him on that one game but that's what happens when you split hairs simon's really gonna put disrespect on John Hanna's name for not being able to block <laughs> eight dudes at the same time, bro. What the heck? Yes. Like, bro, yes. you know they were bringing eight every time. John Hanna, I said he could play all five, but not at the same time, bro. <laughs> like, he's behind Larry Allen for me, but bruh. I mean, if you bring like up that, not disrespecting him, bro. He played against a great defense and he lost. Look, there could be worse losses, trust me. I mean, like, because this was a quality loss. I know people hate to say it, but, you know, there, there are certain losses in history that aren't quality losses. LeBron losing to the Mavs in the finals. That's not a quality loss, to be honest. Well, in my opinion, it is, but for most people, it's not. And so, you know, it was a quality loss against a historical great defense. 
congrats, you know, you lost, but again, you lost and you don't have a ring. So it's, it's just one of those things, you know, splitting hairs. That's it. It's splitting hairs. It's one of those things. <laughs> well, but uh, that that's my two cents on uh, John Hanna. Liam, do you want to talk about your special addition to your list? Yeah, let's talk about him. Joe Thomas. Um, I would say he's the second best left tackle of all time. You guys have any uh, any disagreements about that? Yes. You you would. <laughs> okay, well, never mind. Um, yeah, no, let's talk about Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas played 167 games. Um, at one point before his last season, before he got injured, um, he played 10,000 consecutive snaps. In fact, he ended with 10,363, which he was the first player in the NFL to ever reach that milestone. And that, you know, talking about durability, that is massive. And some of these guys, some of these these players played 15 years. Some of them played 18 years, like we were seeing. Joe Thomas played 10 years. And in 10 years, he reached 10,000 snaps. And some of these guys played 18 years and didn't reach 10,000 snaps. So um, the amount of on-field capability that he had and the, the, the Iron Man level that he brought to the game was massive, in my opinion. Um, first and only offensive lineman in NFL history to be voted to 10 consecutive Pro Bowls, you know? And uh, the most important thing for me is that he did it with a career record of 48 wins, 128 losses, and no playoff appearances. You could argue that he was the only bright spot for the Cleveland Browns between 2007 and 2017. Oh, he was. And, you know, I, I'd say that he probably might have the highest tackle total out of any of these guys because of how many interceptions his quarterbacks threw. Yeah, I'd be exactly. interested to look into that. But I think Joe Thomas is is a great player. I think as far as you want to say like a perfect career goes, Joe Thomas is probably the closest that you can get to a career being perfect from like an efficiency standpoint. Like you said, right. 10 for 10 on Pro Bowls, 10,000 snaps in 10 years, you know. I think that for me, you could see it on my list as well as Simon's list. There's just not a heavy modern presence. And I do have, so if you can visualize, I have like the top five players, right? I have my one through five in dark green. Then I have mm -hmm. the just missed, which is my Forrest Gregg, Jim Otto, and Mel Hine in light green. And then I have this blue list over here on the right. That's like a long list of honorable mentions that I wanted to just bang out real quick where you have like Will Shields, uh, just from the modern era, Orlando Pace, Willie Rofe, as well as Jonathan Ogden, Joe Thomas. Like, there's a lot of dudes from, especially that late 90s slash 2000s decade, and for Joe Thomas into the 2010s, that were the best linemen uh, of our era growing up. You know what I'm saying? I think that it's just really hard to put those in the same breath as these guys that played multiple positions you know what i'm saying and then obviously i i said that like super bowls are a little different 
but having no playoff appearances kind of hurts because you could say that some of these guys, even on like a shorter career, might have played more games too. Right. Or like durability is also a factor of it. Simon brought it up. And, you know, Joe Thomas was perfectly durable for 10 years. It's just a shame that it was only 10 years, yeah. if that makes sense. Where some of these guys have 12 Pro Bowls, 14 Pro Bowls, 11 Pro Bowls that have more Pro Bowls than Joe Thomas spent years in the league, which is nothing to hold against him. And I still think he's one of the best of all time. I just kind of have, I guess, like a bias against like modern era, not for any particular reason, more that the 70s and 80s, I just feel like we're a bit more hard nosed and the versatility impressed me more. Yeah, uh, agreed with everything you said. I have those same guys, by the way, on my uh, miss list and honorable mentions list as well. <clears throat> Look, I agree that Joe Thomas is probably one of the best tackles of all time. Might be the second best of all time. I, there's an argument there, but, you know, the wins, it doesn't really help him out. And, I mean, he only really played 10 years as well, which I get it. It's a personal decision. It's where the NFL is going, just shorter NFL careers. Uh, if you don't play quarterback, that is. But, <laughs> I, you know, and those are things that he honestly really couldn't control. You no, know? right. but, you know, I give him his respect. He was a really good player. And he, I remember him uh, going up against the likes of, you know, James Harrison, Terrell Suggs, all of those guys, and both who are going to the Hall of Fame, you know, and, no, he's had his share of tough AFC North defenses to basically go to battle against all by himself because it's not like the rest of the Browns did, and it shows with their record. So yeah. It is what it is. Um, honestly, if Joe Thomas played until maybe 2019, just a little bit longer, I would say, I think I would consider him more for a top five spot. But just with everyone else, it's really hard to do that, you know? Yeah, and, for sure. And if I may, um, I think that this may be something where, like, maybe I just feel too close to it. So that's why I didn't want to put him in the top five of all time, like, immediately. So Joe Thomas could definitely be a guy where in 10 years, I'm like, no, he, he was a top five all time. But I think that I'm, I'm a little worried about just, like, you know, I watched Joe Thomas this entire time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know... Hopefully, when I look back, I won't remember how terrible the Browns were. I'll remember how good Joe <laughs> Thomas was. Yeah, that'll be hard to do, but uh, we'll we'll give it a shot. Yeah, kind of has that Archie Manning career type right now with you no. Know, so, oh, for sure, where he's like, yeah, he's the only thing that they had going for them for you know for the entire duration that he was there. Obviously, yeah. you know the likes of Josh Gordon and. Um, I can never remember the fullback's name, even though he was on the Broncos. Peyton Hillis. Peyton Hillis. Yeah, Peyton Hillis. You know, they, they obviously still had bright spots, right? But he was the only person who stayed with it. And, you know, hats off to him for staying with the Browns for 10 years with 48 wins, with 128 losses and no playoff appearances. And being, at you know, arguably at some point, the best offensive lineman in the league at his time um he could have gone anywhere you know he literally could have gotten up said i'm done with the browns and gone and played for the patriots and given them super bowls you know what i mean the broncos almost got him 
Yeah, the Broncos almost got him. Oh, and didn't, uh, they didn't. And you know, props to him for sticking with the Browns. Props to him for for doing for Cleveland what uh, LeBron almost didn't. I mean, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's fair. I, yeah, look, loyalty counts for something, and so does durability. And so, I mean, that's why I'll say Joe Thomas might be our most honorable honorable mention of all the people on our list to be honest he's a good guy too that counts for oh, yeah. something he's so nice yeah. if you've watched any of his interviews oh yeah he's a great guy absolutely yeah. um, um i want to um, call out one of my honorable mentions jim ringo okay uh, hold up how do i not what did he play for he played for the packers Okay, yeah, yeah, he he was a part of that um that line. Hey, yeah, he, um, he was the Packers center. Uh Jim yeah. Ringo, good. <laughs> um, yeah, Jim Ringo is one of those weird guys where like he was 211 pounds when he was drafted. He drafted in the seventh round and and only really reached like 230 pounds. But you know his his speed is what made up for it as a center being able to you know be he he essentially made the packers sweep that that kind of like that famous play that essentially helped the packers win two super bowls in at the start of the nfl um or as the start of the nfl as we know it really he made that happen and i mean you could maybe argue that jim taylor the great the greatest fullback of all time might not have had quite the uh, quite the career that he had without Jim Ringo. I mean, for sure. Um, I know we want to kind of keep these a little bit shorter, so I'll just throw out two more. Uh, so I think we've already have we mentioned Alan uh, Fanica? Fanica? No. Okay. Well, but he's on there. He. Yeah, he's a modern day guy. Um, I'm, I feel like that should be pretty obvious, you know. Maybe not top five, but he's an honorable mention. And then last one for me would probably, he's an older guy, but it'd probably have to be Ron Mix. He's considered one of the best offensive linemen to ever play in the AFL from 1960 to 1971. He, the thing that stood out with him was that he was super disciplined and he committed only two holding penalties in a 10 year career for the Chargers and Raiders. That's pretty insane. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty hard to do. No cap. Crazy, the the Raiders have a bunch of honorable mentions on my list. Like I'll put some respect on their name. I have Art Shell on here, Gene Upshaw, and I talked about Jim Otto a little bit. And really, the worst part is that they kind of took away from each other more than anything. So right. the yeah. fact that they all played together is the reason why none of them were in the top five. But they were all great in their own respects and for their own way and. They did play at times without each other. I also want to put out uh, Ronald McDaniel um, or Ronald McDaniel. He played for the Vikings for a really long time and made 12 Pro Bowls. And yeah, the, those are my honorable mentions. Big shout out to Jonathan Ogden. He was the one where <laughs> he's the one I thought of when you're like, yeah, Joe Thomas, second best tackle all time. No cap. I was like, eh. <laughs> Jonathan Ogden was a dog. So yeah, and, yeah. and oh, he sure. helped Jamal Lewis this ran run for two K, which I think is important to point out. So 
Oh. Yep, that's uh, that's what I got for the segment. <laughs> Liam, was there any particular reason why you left uh, Larry Allen out? No, I uh, nothing against Larry Allen either. It's just uh, I just felt like Joe Thomas deserved it more. I mean, mm-hmm. Larry Allen. Larry Allen is a freak of a guy. If if it probably wasn't Joe Thomas, it'd just probably be Larry Allen. You know, just to be completely fair, Larry Allen number six on my list. I definitely think his highlights are the most fun to watch. Oh, for sure. Out of any lineman, he's <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, uh, nuts. He, he's a, yeah, he's nuts. That's a, good, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Larry Allen, most unhinged lineman. Yeah, but in the most respectful oh, yeah. way. <laughs> I mean, no, for sure. If you were to watch lineman, this is the shout out to all the little paws, all the little big boys out there. If you were to watch a lineman film. Larry Allen film and then Anthony Munoz film is probably the way to go. And then Mike Webster too, if you're cold place. Same. I mean, Quentin Nelson might have a, uh, he might take us for a ride with that one. I'm or Zach a- Martin. Yeah. Constantly screaming at people as he charges at them. I'm excited to see Quentin Nelson's career. Yeah. Too. There's some good linemen out there right now that, uh, could make up this next generation for sure for sure i'm excited anyways i think that is it for this segment so coming up next we have another segment of good take bad take i think we're going to talk about one of our episodes called the denver dilemma and go into that coming up next Welcome back to the last segment of the Cycle 365. We got an edition of Good Take, Bad Take. This one is a little bit of a good take, seeing as how we predicted that Drew Locke would come into the lineup with where our season was going to be at when he came back healthy. And it's a little bit of a bad take because we thought Drew Locke was going to be way worse than he was. Here's the take. And then you got Drew Locke on the bench. And he's actually on IR. Yeah, he's injured right now. Wow, okay, so he's not even on the bench. No. So even if y'all wanted to play him, you can't. Yeah, because wow. our only other quarterback on the roster is Brandon Allen, who's not going to do anything. You don't put in Brandon Allen. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. No, no, we don't want him. We do not want him in. Yeah. We don't want him in. I'm just saying, like, we have no other option besides Joe Flacco. Broncos games are already hard to watch. Wait, yeah. so when does Drew Locke come back? Um, He can come back week eight, correct? Mm-hmm. But he's slated for week nine, I think. Yes. Okay. Um, that is if they use that use it on one of two uh, to bring back off the IR. I think they will, especially with how the season's going. And at that point, depending upon a record, most likely bring him in. I'm ready to see him already. I'm not a huge, I'm not high on Drew Locke, but at this point, I want to see him. Yeah. I think y'all need to figure out what, what's up with him because this next quarterback class, like... It's making a break. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the Broncos franchise. You got, in my opinion, you have at least, in my Around four or five quarterbacks are better than Drew Locke right now. You're right, and Joe Flacco right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, y'all either stick with Flacco, who's, you know, he's going to win y'all games when y'all aren't going to compete anyways, or you could go with Drew Locke, who, in my opinion, and I'm pretty sure everyone in this room's opinion, is already a little bit iffy. We weren't really big believers in him in the preseason. Didn't really help with that either. Not at all. So, he looks, yeah. he looks trash, mm-hmm. to be honest. So, I am... He might, he might be on the trade block already. Or if not, then y'all might have to buy into him, see what you have. But by that point, 
by the time you actually figure out and know for sure Tua, Jake from all those guys, they'll be gone. Long gone. And yeah. so that's that's the that's the dilemma right now, because quarterback wise, there's no upside. You're right. I think I think this is a make it or break it draft for the franchise quarterback. For the, yeah. for the future of the Broncos franchise at quarterback position, this draft is the one where they're gonna get the oh, quarterback. Y'all yeah. will have to make some hard decisions on pretty much this season, in my opinion. Either You're this right. season or in the off season. You're right. Uh, so as as you can hear on the take, unfortunately we don't have Jesse with us who provided a lot of the take, but he said, depending on where the season's at, when Drew Locke is healthy, we need to put him in. And Simon echoed his sentiment saying that we need to figure out what we got. Jesse said he wasn't too high on him, which that's still a bit of a question mark. We've definitely wagered a lot on what we saw in those few games. But we, I'd say that it inspired optimism that wasn't previously there. Liam, being the fellow Bronco fan in the chat, what are your thoughts on this take and kind of reflecting back on last season? I know it's really hard to think about what life was like before Drew Locke because it hurts to think about, but kind of what what are what were your thoughts heading into Drew Locke starting and, you know, I guess like the outlook of the season after we started off 0-4? Well, I got to be honest with you. I think my, my uh, outlook on it was you, you could sum it up as, well, this couldn't get any worse. Yeah. So, so uh, putting Drew Locke in, you know, I I was kind of high on Flacco. Let's be honest. Um, I know we we had that conversation a couple times in in, in private, um, but I was pretty excited for Drew Locke coming in, um, just to see what he could do. You know what I mean? I I didn't really have much of an estimation of his skills or his abilities, but I was willing to give him a chance. I know the. You know, so much of Broncos history is uh, has been driving out pretty decent quarterbacks in in search for the next John Elway, in search for the next chosen one. So, you know, I was a little bit worried about that happening with Drew Locke. Um, I was worried that we were starting him before he was ready, but he proved us all wrong, I think, and uh, he, he was ready. He was ready for he, he was ready to go four and one at the very least you know that's not indicative of an entire season obviously uh and so that's what this next season is going to be the most important part of but he was ready for those four those four games that we played uh that we won i wouldn't say that he was ready to go up against the chiefs in the snow even at home uh but you know that is what it is so in my mind uh good take yeah so we originally had him slated going in, I believe week nine was his return, but they kept pushing it back. So they made sure it, it, he was healthy, which yeah. I think was super important to A, his performance during the games and B, his confidence. You don't want to put a guy, especially a rookie quarterback who, you know, during the draft process was projected by some to go in the first round. And, you know, from... Us here at the cycle projected to go even a little bit later. Third or fourth round guy, I think is what we were saying. Because we knew that he needed to be developed. And we, we talked about it during the preseason. We weren't overly impressed, especially with his footwork. But he, we found a way to use him. And we even beat a playoff team during this run with Drew Locke. 
yeah, that team uh, being the being the uh, Texans, of course. Yep. Mm-hmm. Simon, you have an opinion? I mean, what do, what are some of your from an outside perspective? I guess, what do you think about the, this take? Oh, it's a good take. I mean, I didn't have a choice, and I think it was this only choice that y'all really had to make. You know, y'all weren't going to the playoffs, and even if you did, you weren't going to contend. Let's be honest. So you had to figure out what you had in Drew Lock, because y'all know that you had a really good draft class coming up. Like, I think. If Drew Lock didn't work out, there honestly there might have been a scenario where Jalen Hurts might have been drafted in the second round instead uh, to the Broncos. I could have seen that for sure, uh-huh. and but obviously that didn't happen because they all have Drew Lock, and you know I'll give him his credit. He played relatively well his first five games. Um, does is that you know an accurate depiction of what's going to happen for the rest of his career? I don't think so. Um. Uh, y'all did build around him, so y'all really don't have a choice anymore. And you got to ride this guy out for at least two or three more years, um, whether you like it or not. Hoping to, because and because if he doesn't do well, then the narrative will be, well, you know, we just got to help him find that magic that he had his rookie season, and that might be something y'all might hold on to even if he doesn't consistently do well. And I think that's fair to say. But he did look pretty solid. Hey, look, I, I think there's optimism there for those. Okay. I'm just going to throw this out there. One of my favorite podcasts, sports podcasts ever to listen to outside of the Cycle 365 would have to be Strong Opinion Sports led by Zach Schaumler. You know, I, I love him because he breaks down film really well. He's a quarterback. He was a college quarterback, so he knows what he's talking about. And he goes in depth, he makes it understandable. And, you know, he does breakdown videos. And he did a, I'm pretty sure he did a breakdown video. You can look it up on YouTube, Spotify, all of those major streaming sports at Strong Opinion Sports. He did a breakdown of Drew Locke. He said, yes, there's plenty he did well. You know, he made some pretty... I would say easy he would say easy decisions and whatnot that you would expect any you know solid quarterback to make this next year he needs to work a little bit harder we got to see you know what 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 teams could actually roll out against them because teams weren't really playing you know i don't want to say serious defense but they weren't because you know you, you never want to show off all your cards to a team that you know you could beat without doing that you know and so now that teams actually have film on drew lock and not just college film but nfl film solidified nfl film on drew lock well, now they're gonna start dissecting drew lock and his tendencies and you know really nitpick and see all right well is he the real deal if he faces a safety blitz or you know uh, say against the steelers if he faces you know some actual elite pass rushers and you know a great safety with minko fitzpatrick over the edge can he still make the right play under pressure and, you know, sometimes, you know, it comes down to not can he do it mentally, but, you know, will he do it physically? And that that might be the thing to look out for, just his mechanics, his accuracy, all that stuff. There are definitely, and I think y'all saw it, but there are definitely throws where it was like, made the right read, but man, was that throw terrible. And like, I, I don't know. Or sometimes, you know, maybe the throw was okay, but man, was that read not was very mark sanchez-esque uh, for being <laughs> honest so th- that's that's what happens when you have a rookie quarterback a young quarterback and he is a young guy he's pretty young comparatively to other uh, nfl quarterbacks so you know we'll give him that pass for now but i would say that is a good uh take 
I I definitely am going to echo. There were some times where I was just like, oh, don't don't throw it there. And then he'd throw it there. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that didn't get intercepted. But, you know, fortunately, you say Mark Sanchez-esque read, but Drew Locke has a way strong arm. You know, I mean, we, we saw it at least in the preseason and even during like combine and college where, you know, his footwork, it, it, first off, his footwork improved dramatically between the preseason and week 12. I want to, or week 13, I want to put that out there. Just like you could see it in his dropbacks looked smoother. You could see it even when he was handing the ball off, it looked a lot more comfortable. Like he felt more in his element and he wasn't afraid to use his legs for rush for to rush for a couple of yards here and there. But I do want to say that I think the most important part of Drew Locke coming into the lineup was hope and confidence, right? I mean, Joe Flacco's never been known for being an inspiring dude. We all know that. Like, I mean, yes. I've probably seen him smile like twice in his whole career. And one of those is when he was holding the Lombardi trophy and it's like, yeah, bro, you should probably smile when you do that. <laughs> like he's pretty bland, like Joe Flacco's pretty bland, you know, and no, no disrespect to him or Brandon Allen. Brandon Allen was a stopgap guy just until Drew Locke was healthy or until Joe Flacco was healthy. We all knew that, you know, Brandon Allen wasn't the future of the Denver Broncos franchise. But, you know, I think that one thing that worked really well for Drew Locke was we're like, all right, go in and show us what you got. And he, he knew that we didn't have anything to lose. You know, he's like, oh, like, all right, I'm just going to go have fun. And I think that if he continues that mentality of like having fun and, you know, because there is pressure on him, right? Our draft class says that sure. more than anything else. For sure. And, oh. you know, it, it's, is he going to let the pressure get to him? Or is he going to go out there and is, is he going to have fun? Because I think if he plays relaxed, then the Broncos can succeed and thrive with Drew Locke under center. I mean, I, I agree, and I'm an outside perspective. I think, you know, if he, I, I like, I really like his attitude, you know, um, approaching everything. He kind of just has one of those attitudes that makes him, you know, a real likable guy, a real, like, a good character, I would say. I think there are a lot, I wouldn't say there are a lot of guys around the league that are like that, but, you know, there, there's definitely a couple. I think Juju Smith Schuster is one of those guys that you just like. I think Drew Locke is kind of like that. He's just one of those guys that you just like. And, you know, you want him to succeed. You want him to play with confidence, to play with his swagger. You know, doing it right. Because <laughs> that's what it comes down to. This is a game, but it's a very extremely competitive game where you got to do something right. Or someone will take your job because there are plenty of talented quarterbacks to do so. And, you know, I think he could do it. Honestly, I'll, I'll say that right now. I think he can do it. Um, with Not just because of the weapons around him, but just who he is as a player how hard he's worked and how much he has improved you know um not gonna go as far as saying that he has a patrick mahomes type of uh you know trajectory i know we kind of mentioned that briefly last week but i would say that he's somebody who could have a, a patrick mahomes sort of kind of like progression in a way you know because mahomes was not a complete guy coming out of college you know, many other analysts have said the same thing. Honestly, a lot of people did low-key compare uh, Drew Locke as a, uh, you know, as a prospect to uh, Patrick Mahomes as a prospect. The only difference was that, you know, more people bought into Patrick Mahomes as a prospect than Drew Locke. 
it was pretty obvious because Drew Locke would make way more terrible decisions Patrick Mahomes ever did at Texas Tech. You know, it's a difference of uh, systems and conferences. Anyways, though, I think he can make, you know, significant progressions uh, this season if it happens. And, you know, throughout his career, he just seems like a hardworking guy. As long as he doesn't get complacent, that's really the only thing. You know, he'll be he'll be okay. He'll be pretty good, actually. Yeah, he he needs to protect the ball more than anything because sure. the interceptions yeah. that he threw were they were bad. There's some terrible <laughs> interceptions. I'm not even gonna lie. Um, and you know, he he this kind of th this wasn't talked about enough, I don't think. But he had two fumbles in that final game against the Raiders, and I was actually fortunate enough to go see that game. And you know, there were some plays where it's like, okay. Like, like his energy was a huge part of it. I don't know if you guys ever saw him rapping that young Jeezy song when we were in like the third quarter, but you know, like even when the Raiders were mounting a comeback a little bit, Drew Locke was like, Hey guys, let's, let's go. Let's just go play some football, you know? And like, that's his strength, but also he needs to know when to really turn it on and focus because those two fumbles could have cost us that last game. But luckily Drew Locke, was the quarterback who ended the Oakland Raiders their their franchise history with a loss. So take that L on the way out, Oakland. Oh. <laughs> I just I, I always have to bring it up that the last thing that the <laughs> Oakland Raiders did was lose to the Broncos in mile high. I'm Damn, done. That's fair. That'll you never know? get old. Uh, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm I don't care because I'm not a Broncos fan. But yeah, sure. <laughs> Drew, Drew Locke was the guy. Okay, he was there. Granted, a lot of it was Philip Lindsay, but we have a cast um, around him, and hopefully, we. I mean, y'all have much better coaching, in my opinion, too. I think the fact that he could do as much as he did with y'all's uh, OC, which we were really critical of in that take, by the way, and he did get fired for a much better one, in um. Oh my Pat gosh, uh, Pat Shermer. Yeah. Uh, I think he would be excellent in Pat Shermer's system. I think he'll put up some really nice numbers. But, you know, at the end, at the end of the day, you know, we gotta, yes, criticize quarterbacks based on their play consistently, especially in crunch time. You know, because numbers are great all around, but it's the plays that happen in crunch time that will ultimately matter. So that's why he has to get his footwork completely right. He has to get his consistent. Uh, see, uh, he has to get his consistency right. He has to get his, you know, um, and not, maybe not as much of this, but you know, reading defenses, defenses a little bit better. And you know, I think he'll be real successful even without that. I think in some ways he'll be successful. You know, just being who he is, having a great arm, and just being that athletic dude. But all I have to say about that, Liam. Yeah, I mean, he, you guys put it pretty well. We we built, we've built around him. We built a system around him. We've hired coaches, what seems like based around him, you know. So the the impetus is on him now, and I think he has everything he needs to succeed, but he also has everything he needs to spectacularly fail. So it's it's we'll see what happens. You know what I mean? Obviously, yeah. I'm rooting for him to succeed. Just because I'm a Broncos fan, I like uh, him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be bad anymore. Yeah, big knock on wood in that one. Um, and then I don't know. It's it's 
I hear it so much that I'm, I'm kind of getting sick of hearing it, but everybody in the Broncos locker room always talks about, and can you call it out, Cody? I'll give you one word, one guess. What do they, what do they say when they talk about Drew Locke? What are you talking about, attitude? Swag, bro. He does have swag. He he's does got, have he's swag. He's got swagger, and that's what that's what all of his teammates say, and they all seem to be behind him. So that's the most encouraging thing. Like, yes, everybody was behind Flacco. Yes, everybody was behind Case Keenum. Yes, you know, everybody was behind Trevor Simeon. But this guy seems to be – there seems to be something different, at the very least, from, from those other three guys. You know what I mean? I mean, he arguably has the most personality since Manning – yeah. But in, in, in like a different way, but still in like, you know, Peyton knew how to have fun too. So Right. Right. I mean, if we're if we're talking like straight fiery personality, he, he might be the uh the closest to Tim Tebow we've gotten since Tim Tebow. And we won games with Tebow, so I'll take it. And we won games with Good. Tebow, so <laughs> Good. Yeah, I agree. He has that swag. I can't even deny it. You know, you gotta put in that work or you just look like a clown. Oh. Yeah, Johnny Manziel had some swag and. Oh. Hey, hey, don't be jinxing us like that. <laughs> no, I didn't say it. I just said he had swag. You know. Uh, to True. Well, Johnny Manziel had swag. He also had issues. Uh, no, for sure. But um, if that's everything that needs to be said, Cody, did you have anything to add? Nope. I was uh, going to start on the outro if you weren't. I got you. Well, with all that being said, we'll just have to see. And you know, we definitely made plenty of uh, takes right here in this good take, bad take right here about Drew Lock. So we'll see what happens. Uh, make sure you follow us on social media at the cycle 365. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's the same handle for all of those things. Um, make sure, I mean, if you're listening to us, you've probably already, you know, figured out where to find us, but for your friends and make sure you share this because we have some great content coming out and continuing to come out even as, you know, um, the year goes on, but make sure you could make sure you find us at the cycle three, six, five on major, on all major streaming platforms and YouTube as well. And yeah. Give us a share, show us some love on on everything on social media, on those streaming platforms. And yeah, I'm one of your co-hosts, Simon Voyanos. I'm Cody Stoffer. And I am Liam Hughes. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Catch us next week when we will continue um our episodes. Also the mini-series, because this week we're taking a break from the mini series. We are taking a break from the mini-series. Catch you next time. <laughs>